Hello friends, Kyla here. For the next week, you'll be seeing bonus episodes from the Harbinger Media Network Telethon. We kicked it off with ours and have decided to share the rest so y'all can have a sampling of the wonderful voices we share the network with. This episode, you'll hear Bread and Poppy's Hillary Agro and Harbinger board member Dr. Jess Green talk COP27 and leftist parenting strategies for Halloween. And then Stephen Maguziak and Romy Garrido in Calgary, Emily Leadham in Winnipeg, Rumnik Jahal in Surrey, and Mitchell Thompson in Toronto discuss Press Progress's recent reporting and the organization's new podcast, Sources. If you want to watch the 12-hour telethon in full, there is a link in the description. This telethon was part of the fundraising campaign for Harbinger this year, so if you like that Harbinger is bringing together a network of progressive left podcasts in Canada, then you can support the network by going to harbingermedianetwork.com join. The first 50 to support at the $100 a year level will receive a new release from Canada's legacy left book publisher, Between the Lines. Now, enjoy this little bonus! Welcome everyone to Harbinger's I Know What You Did Last Telethon Spooky Halloween Fundraiser. I'm Harbinger Executive Director Andre Goulet. The lineup today is hot, no joke. It's scary how good it is. Uh, we have Press Progress coming up next hour, The Breach uh, from 2 p.m. to 3, The Hoser from 3 to 4 p.m., Darts and Letters from 4 to 5 p.m., Pivot, Quebec's Solidarity Journalism Cooperative from 5 to 6, Briar Patch from 7 to 8, Pullback and Green Majority Radio interviewing Victor's children host David Camfield about his new book Future on Fire from 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., Desmond Cole and Shama Ranwala are coming on to do a episode of Replay. Uh, at 9 p.m., it's the Alberta Advantage. At 10 p.m., the Forgotten Corner. And at midnight, or sorry, at 11 p.m., uh, Kainagata is welcoming Harsha Walia and some other friends to talk about what's wrong with British Columbia. We're we're gonna find out all about that. Uh, and and next we're gonna have Hillary Agro and Jess Green from Harbinger's Board of Directors coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, thanks a lot to the Bone Shilling Big Shiny Takes Institute for providing expert technical assistance on this stream. Institute fellow Macabra Marino Greco is menacing me now from the control room. He'll be ghoulishly monitoring today's eerie events, and we're really grateful for his help today. Thanks, Marino. Uh, in just a few minutes, we'll talk to Bread and Poppy's host, Hillary Agro, and Jess Green from Harbinger's board. But first, I Know What You Did Last Telethon is proudly presented in part by our partners at Between the Lines Books. Founded in 1977, Between the Lines publishes nonfiction books that expose and challenge oppression in society, amplifying the struggles of Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities, migrants, women, queer, and working class people. BTL is proudly left-wing, and the books they publish reflect their activist roots and commitment to social justice struggles, and their authors are academics, journalists, artists, and activists. 
they come out of the new left radical tradition. So BTL embodies the cooperative and democratic ideals of its founders with no bosses, no individual owner, and run by a small group of staff and a dedicated volunteer editorial committee. Decisions on what they publish are made by consensus and they're not published for profit, but they wanna archive and promote struggles to create a better world, challenge the mainstream and offer readers new perspectives on critical political issues. Super in sync with the values that the Harbinger community holds. So we're really happy to have them be part of this stream today. One new BTL release I wanna highlight is for anyone experiencing rent evictions, facing rent increases or watching condos multiply in our neighborhoods with unease, which is definitely me here in Montreal in the Villeray neighborhood. Gentrification is inevitable and other lies from Sackville, New Brunswick, urban geographer Leslie Kern is an accessible analysis of gentrification as she reports from Toronto, Vancouver, New York, London and Paris, problematizing the stories we tell about how and why gentrification happens, explaining why changing neighborhoods are becoming less diverse, less affordable and less welcoming and foregrounding issues often sidelined in discussions about gentrification like racism and settler colonialism and even gender relations. In Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies, Kern persuasively shows how the lies we hear about gentrification work to diminish the possibility for change in our cities, emphasizing solidarity and hope and showcasing resistance strategies from around the world, showing that gentrification is not inevitable if neighbors mobilize collectively to reclaim our cities. You can find Leslie Kern's Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies now from Between the Lines Books at btlbooks.com. So thanks for listening to that. You guys, our objective today is big, it's ambitious. We're looking to hit 50 new sustaining Harbinger members over the course of this 12 hour telethon to join our 94 current members whose small monthly contributions help to sustain the community. And over the last year, it's allowed Harbinger to expand a lot. So honestly, we had an incredible year of growth. We had five waves of expansion, bringing 15 new shows to the community in January, February, March, May, and a spooky expansion in October too. These included the Maples, North Untapped in BC, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East's Debrief, and Community University Television's Local 514 in Montreal, Fernwood Publishing's 30th anniversary podcast, 30 Wood, hosted by Nora Loretto in Quebec City, Ethical Consumption Show Pullback in Vancouver and Ottawa, Deathnography, Worst Case Ontario, Green Majority Radio, and The Hosers Short Circuit in the GTA, Video Magazine Propaganda and Disability Justice Advocacy Documentary Podcast, Invisible Institutions in Ottawa, Unmaking Saskatchewan in Regina, Victor's Children in Winnipeg, and Press Progress's Sources and The Breach Show from The Breach Media with hosts around the country. To sustain this kind of sensationally sprawling and regionally representative content, Harbinger needs supporters like you to step up and shine to help us out. Our loose collective of 50 podcast and video shows from coast to coast punches above our weight in terms of influence, and we reach at least 100,000 cumulative listeners and viewers every month 
but we need your help to do it. That's why we're asking you to become a monthly sustaining member of the Harbinger community on this stream. Any contributions welcome, a dollar, a toonie, three bucks a month, and you can uh, click on the um, follow or subscribe button on this stream to, to support us like that. But if you would like to give five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, uh, the progressive media ally level of support will give you an annual mail out, including Harbinger stickers, pins, and postcards. At the $10 a month or $100 a year level, the mutual aid sustainer tier gets you the mail out and a new release from our pals at Between the Lines Books, which is awesome. For the super wealthy, there's more premium levels too, like Comrade with Benefits, which gives you the merch, the book, and a premium limited edition gift in the mail, like a branded Harbinger tote bag, a set of premium crystal glassware, or a monogrammed monocle. We're still waiting for final confirmation from the Harbinger board of directors before placing the order. Uh, at the exclusive 500 bucks a year level, Harbinger Hall of Heroes gets you access to fun Harbinger community hangouts around the country all through 2023. And of course, the dark money donor tier gives you bragging rights at your local Jacobin reading group for just $1,000 a year. <laughs> you can check out all of those tiers at harbingermedianetwork.com slash join slash or by clicking the link that you see on this stream. And for the commitment adverse, like I mentioned before, we're also shooting to hit $1,000 in individual one-time donations over the course of the next 12 hours to cover the costs of running the stream. So smash that button at the bottom right uh, below the screen and help us start big uh, on this stream today. So to kick off the stream, to really begin, I know what you did last telethon. I am really scared to welcome a petrifying pair of opening co-hosts. University of Toronto professor and the Harbinger Board of Directors, Jess Green's area of expertise include climate justice and carbon markets, transnational regulation, regime complexity and organizational ecology, and UBC grad student and Bread and Poppies host, Hilary Agro, writes and researches on drugs and drug use activism, policy, urban ethnography, and political anthropology, bridging academia and public education in a way that I love so much with 50,000 Twitter followers and 70,000 followers and more than a million likes on TikTok. Hillary and Jess both join us from Toronto today. You guys, welcome to and thank you for kicking off. I know what you did last telethon. Ooh, here we wow. are. <laughs> Cauldron <Wow>. of fear. <laughs> so scary. Hillary, you got a great costume. What 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 is it? Uh I'm a spooky zebra. <laughs> um yeah. Uh everyone admire my makeup that I did in about five minutes yesterday. It's, uh wow. Amazing. Did, did you go yes, hard last night? Yesterday. Uh I did, yes. Mama went to party. Good for <laughs> I, you was able to, yeah, we had a friend uh, take care of the kids and um, yeah, went out. I'm very tired, but I figured, hey, I'll just, I'll just pretend that I got dressed up for this <laughs> and not I that I it. got out of bed and came straight here. 
Thank you so much for joining, Hillary. Even though you did go hard, it's really cool to see you and thank you for being here. And just thank you for being here. Um, you and I, we didn't uh, costume, did we? Yeah, so I saw on Twitter this morning, I can't um, take credit for this, but um, somebody asked like, what's the costume for sexy climate change? And I think like, if I could conceptualize that, that would totally be my, uh, that would be my costume, but I, I don't know, like things on fire. I don't know. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Well, well, since we have you for the first like 30 minutes of the stream, Jess, um, I, I did want to sort of touch on your, some of your area of expertise because um, COP27 is happening uh, beginning on November 6th. And yeah. uh, I'm stoked. I'm really excited. I think, I think this could be the one that really, uh, cracks the puzzle that that solves the code. Um, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it, and so I'm wondering if if you share that optimism or or what your take is on COP27 being held in Cairo beginning uh, uh, early in November. What, yeah, what yeah, dude, so excited! It's gonna um, be. Like oh. oh, by the way, I just want to mention because it's gonna be really confusing. I'm also because I uh, failed to have time to promote this on TikTok, where I have another audience i'm streaming on tiktok at the same time oh. to try to don't tell tiktok drive people towards this marathon awesome <clears throat> i'm like worried that i put a link in the video and i'm worried i'm gonna get banned or something for like driving people towards a different platform but anyways if you see me talking it's because i'm muted and i'm talking to my phone screen here to just explain to people why why i'm looking down here and stuff anyways go on i love it okay. i love it amazing yeah amazing um so just yeah yeah, spooky, spooky stuff is afoot for COP27, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's like every year now, I'm like, oh, fuck, it's the cop again. What, what, what's what's, what's going to happen? Nothing. Okay, but we're going to talk about it a lot. And people are going to be like, oh, no, we really need to do something. Shit's getting really crazy. And mm -hmm. like, there's been this whole slew of reports over the last week of like, how terrible climate change is and how we need to decarbonize and have emissions by 2030. And it's not gonna happen in Egypt. <laughs> like it's just, I mean, it's not to, to my mind, it's no longer the place where we need to be talking about climate change. Like it's just not okay. because countries go there every year and they make a bunch of promises and then they don't do them. And then they come back the next year and they're like, okay, we'll make these other promises. And then they don't do those. Mm. And it's, you know, and people are dying and nothing's fucking happening. And it's when, infuriating. When, so when did it become a kind of climate cosplay? When, when would you say mm. was the sort of tipping point where it became something that was, um, what do you call it? Like, yeah, projecting and not doing or, or yeah. What was, when did that changeover kind of begin to become apparent? Climate cosplay, love that. I'm gonna steal that one. Um, great question. So I think like somewhere around like in the run up to the Paris Agreement in 2015. So before Paris, we had Kyoto, the Kyoto Protocol, countries that only required developing countries, sorry, only required developed countries to cut their emissions. And that did not go over well, basically. It was a very um, tenuous agreement. 
most developed countries didn't meet their targets or they pulled out or like the US, they never, Canada pulled out, the US never signed. Um, and so Paris was like this new approach mm-hmm. where everybody, which I call the choose your own adventure approach to climate policy. Mm-hmm. Every country gets to pick what they're gonna do and developing countries have to do something too. And so I think Paris was like a moment where everyone was like, oh, we can do this. And then, because it was a diplomatic success, but effectively a climate failure. Because mm-hmm. as soon as the Paris Agreement was inked, everyone was like, you know, all the sort of observers were like, well, this isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And yet every year we come back to kind of revisit progress on Paris. And every year the gap between the, pro- the promises and the actual policies gets wider and the world gets hotter. So I would say like around Paris is, is when the cosplay really started. I think okay. costumes would be in order. That would be great. <laughs> Not to make it too confusing, but um, uh, Harbinger comrade, Paris Marx uh, is actually going to COP. And, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Yeah, they are. They were invited to speak. Um, I, I forget exactly what it's about, but Paris was in Montreal uh, last week, and so we hung out. And they were sort of lamenting. Um, I mean, having to go and just sort of go through these motions. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting because I, I never thought about how gloomy it would actually be for people to. For, uh, for people who kind of understand the depth of the crisis and, uh, and empathize with that to actually go and have to like go through the motions. Um, so what are they planning on talking about? Like what, what's the, what's different from the previous cop, uh, like the climate cop? Um, yeah. What, what's, what's up with this Cairo cop? <laughs> um, good question. I mean, a lot of this is just now, I, I would say there's like, First of all, there's like a bajillion moving parts to the Paris Agreement at this point. Like it's just become as more and more complex. And it's like, okay, everybody's busy, but nothing's really getting done. Hmm. Um, So there's a lot of things happening. I would say politically, there's one key issue, which is um, loss and damage, which has been talked about a bit in the press in the run-up, which is basically developing countries saying, you broke this, you got to pay us. Hmm. And we it's essentially a form of climate reparations. And um, it, for both things that have occurred and for sort of slow onset damages into the future. Hmm. And developed countries have basically said, we're not doing that. <laughs> or maybe but like before Paris, they established this mechanism where they were going to talk about it and share best practices and these kinds of things, but never actually ponied up the money because developed countries didn't want to be on the hook for bad shit um, that's happening because of climate change. So that's a big one, I think, in terms of like legitimacy, because if it doesn't, if it doesn't make any, if there's no progress and there's no admission by developed countries, like we need to do something, then you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I think there's a lot of real push from the developed world, developing world. Like we're getting screwed and you need to do something about it. I mean, they still like in 2009, developed countries said, okay, well, we can't agree to anything, but we promise we're going to give you a hundred billion dollars a year um, starting in 2020. And that money has never appeared or a very small percentage of it has appeared. Um, so I, I think this is going to be a lot more of the same. Politically, there's another thing that's been going on, which is um, 
this discussion of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, mm -hmm. which has been spearheaded by Tzpora Berman here in Canada um, and some other academics, um, which is basically a treaty like the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, like no more nukes, no more, no more fossil fuels. And um, Vanuatu was the first country to say, we support this. Um, and I think there's some, some push for that from the most vulnerable island states um, and low-lying states. Mm -hmm. so, so there's, you know, there's some things on the, on the docket that are political in terms of process. There's a discussion that <clears throat> this is the last meeting before the global stock take of 2023. My brain is so full of useless terms. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, the and so basically that is to see it's like the how are we doing meeting um, and there's a lot of preparation for that uh, in the run up to the 2023 meeting so I think there will be a lot of discussion around that that's more sort of process oriented um, but like I don't you know until countries actually start doing the shit that they said that they would do I'm I'm not sure what's going to like, what, what are they going to talk about for two weeks? The UK oh. is not going because apparently climate change is not important to them. Although it was like 24 C in London last week. I mean, it's yeah, the UK, the UK is not a coastal country though. So they would have no need to worry about rising mm. sea levels. So I could see why they wouldn't, why they wouldn't come by. Um, but Jess, I have another question to pursue um, the, this, this sort of like, contradiction not a contradiction but the fact that it's happening in Cairo Egypt is like you know not great on human rights maybe terrible on human rights and Lauren Latour who's one of the co-hosts of Green Majority Radio which is a show that's new to Harbinger and joined us in our October expansion they have a wonderful show uh, at Toronto's CIUT which is the community radio station and for eight years now and like 800 episodes they have been talking about ecology green issues climate it and more. So on last week's episode, Lauren's going to COP as well. And she was really unpacking this contradiction of like, you're going to go hang out at a resort in a country that is like totally full of really, um, really stark kind of human rights abuses. Uh, so does, I don't know, what does that contradiction say? Like, is it just, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's not a great look. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not the first or last time that like the meeting before Paris, I think, was in Poland, which is oh. like major coal producer. And there was like coal, uh, ex there was like an exhibition by the coal industry in the lobby of the negotiations, apparently. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's, it's not a great look. Um, and, uh, you know, climate rights are human rights and vice versa. So we, you know, I think that there are some, um, there's an increasing awareness about that. And I think that's good. Like the good thing is that since Egypt is, has a questionable human rights record, it's bringing attention to that. And it's bringing attention to the link between hu human rights and climate rights. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, Egypt has, has already cracked down on um, civil society participation. Um, there was an article in the Guardian today criticized that um, a number of NGOs are criticizing Greenpeace for kind of downplaying and encouraging other NGOs to downplay uh, Egypt's questionable human rights record. 
So, uh, yeah, not good. I mean, I think, you know, we want to have more yelling and screaming at the cop and that's not going to happen as much as it would have otherwise. Um, I can just jump in and say yay for more yelling and screaming at people. <laughs> well, and I was going to say uh, people watching this stream will probably also concur that uh, we are all into yelling and screaming at the cops. Um, but what I want to also ask Hillary is, is there uh, any specific drugs that might be better or worse for sort of dealing with climate anxiety um, and for and for this moment in the crisis? Any thoughts on that from an academic uh, scholarly perspective? Oh, that's a big old question. It's a That's joke. A you don't you don't you don't have to answer. Why don't you? No, I think it's actually a really interesting question. And uh -huh. it's kind of you. That's actually one of the main questions in my PhD dissertation research. Like my research goals is exploring climate anxiety and just sort of general civilizational collapse anxiety and drug use, hmm. because, yeah, things are pretty fucked and people uh, want to help do something about that that deep awful anxiety that we're all feeling and consciousness alteration is a way of doing that um it's not something that works for everybody it's not something that's sustainable for everybody you might find a solution that is helpful for climate anxiety and just this kind of anxiety in, in general that helps in the short term um and it might be a really not great opportunity in the long term but i think what's what's really important to recognize is that um, when we're talking about how to deal with this kind of anxiety, um, the the one thing that we can do is at least not uh, shame and stigmatize others for choosing a path that we ourselves might not choose because we have different choices. You know, like you can, it's easy to to shame somebody for wanting to get high and just forget about all of this when you yourself have access to like therapy and a support system and like a house that has a functioning, you know, water and electricity. Um, so yeah, I think that when we're seeing rates of overdose rise right now, we talk a lot uh, in drug policy circles about um, the fentanyl crisis, and that's a really, really big reason why uh, there are so much, there's so many overdoses right now is um, the uh, drug poisoning crisis based on drug policy that's, you know, drug prohibition has created this toxic drug supply and some people you know, fentanyl is showing up in things and people are overdosing, but it's also because rates of drug use mm -hmm. um, are rising because rates of anxiety and mental health problems are rising because, oops, we live in a shit ass society that like, yeah, because capitalism and because we like are being, like the solutions um, that are being sold to us under capitalism are also awful for us. Like to, just well, uh, go so to- I, 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 love, I love that this is part of what you do with your research because it's, and, and Jess is gonna have to go in a minute. So I'm gonna like pivot there in a second. Yeah, yeah. But I love that this is part of the work that you do academically, because I think it's so interesting. And it's something that is sort of apparent if you think about how the American Rust Belt reacted to the collapse of industry, like through the 70s and 80s, and how that led to um, increased drug use, and then the way the pharmaceutical companies exploited that, that poverty and need and desperation. Um, but as that sort of amplifies and ramps up with a lot of other late capitalism crises, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's important to recognize and to look at drug use um, within that scope. So I, I want to continue talking about this, but maybe really quick before Jess has to leave. Um, Jess, I asked your son earlier uh, if he could guess which Halloween costume right. was um, the most popular costume, according to a new poll 
uh, released by Abacus um, just uh, this week. And the five choices that they gave poll uh, readers or, or um, participants were witch, vampire, Frankenstein's monster, zombie, uh, the, and a mummy, okay? So sexy so, climate change didn't make the list. No, it didn't make the list. Sexy climate change was not on there. <laughs> um, so Jess, what would be your guess about top costume? Uh, I'm going to go with, um, what do you guys think? Meatball. Meatball. Myla says meatball. I'm going to go, what do you think? Frankenstein? Okay. I'm going to go with vampire. Okay, interesting. I'm curious what Hillary thinks. Hillary, if you can hear me, um, which which of those five do you think people chose as the most popular? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the list. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. The vampire. This Frank is like a really monster. difficult needle to thread. Where I'm like trying to get like my TikTok audience to see this and come to the fundraiser because yay, supporting Harbinger, but also trying to pay attention to them no, and no. also pay attention to this. <laughs> No, then you know what? I'm just going to shock you. I'm going to surprise you with the answer of which vampire, Frankenstein's monster, zombie, or mummy, which one was the most popular. Uh, maybe it won't surprise you guys to hear that fully, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm scrolling down to check this out. Fully 31% of people chose witch as witch. their number one choice. Second was vampire at 23, with ghost close behind at 20. Frankenstein's monster, just 12% of people chose that. And the mummy came in uh, uh, low at seven. But Jess, I know that you got to go be a mummy right now. I do um, have to go be a mummy, but the good kind, the nice kind. The, the, the good kind. Um, so Jess, thank you so much for stopping well, we by. We often feel like the other kind. Yeah. <laughs> Thank kind you for having me. And um, thanks to all of the supporters of Harbinger out there. Uh, we're building a really cool project of uh, people who care about the world That's and people who want to make it a better place. So please uh, join us for that really important ride. Jess, thank you. I appreciate it. Jess Green is a University of Toronto professor, thanks. and she's also on Harbinger's board of directors. Bye, Jess. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye, Jess. <laughs> Hillary. Let's get back into it. Um, if things get too dark, I do want to pivot back to this poll from Abacus because there's some very interesting stuff. But um, let's continue to talk a little bit about your work because uh, within the context of Harbinger, your show Bread and Poppies, um, which is on a bit of a hiatus, uh, made a triumphant return in 2022. Mm -hmm. And you had just like a ton of really rock and roll episodes. Um, like... Uh, and some of them were really interesting because you are not afraid to bring on some some questions like uh, like the the gun control episode, like or or the episode where you basically had a couple American leftists come on and try yeah. to persuade you why guns were actually important for leftists. So I guess I'm curious about um, that, that approach. Why do you like having people on who, who challenge you and, and push you to even like uh, think rationally about something like owning guns, which it, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a real stretch. So anyways, why, why, why do you bring on these kinds of guests? What's your approach with the Bread and Poppies podcast? Okay, so we all know that Dave Rubin is a chump, right? However, um, the idea of change my mind, 
I think has a lot of merit to it. And it's not his fucking idea. Like it wasn't, I'm not giving him credit for it. I just mean that like, there is a meme that has been popularized with like Dave Rubin on a college campus being like, I don't, some bullshit changed my mind. Um, far right, far right loser, um, uh, 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 media um, uh, propaganda. Yeah, just awful, awful ghoulish, like, yeah. Um, thinks he's a comedian. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I don't know, I think that um, as uh, an academic temporarily and, uh, and a public educator, I really, I really like the approach um, what I'm learning of, of like, okay, so because everything that we know is not just based on sort of like our logic and rationality, but it's also based on like our effective um, relationship with the world and the people around us. So um, that's really the core of how we make decisions. And if I hear something or I believe something, but I've heard other people around me don't believe that thing, people that I respect, and I am kind of like, I believe this thing, but you know what? I don't know if that's right. And I don't, I'm willing to learn more. And I think, I don't know. I just don't know enough about it to have an opinion on this thing. Um, and I'm a little bit embarrassed of the opinion that I have because I think it might be very, you know, white and like raised middle class and sheltered or whatever. Or just, you know, other people have experiences that, that I don't. And as an anthropologist, that's really what I try to do. And the thing that has driven me towards my work is an interest in the way that other people live their lives and other cultures and other um, worldviews and perspectives. So to be able to just be like, I'm going to see how other people feel about this and put myself in their shoes and, and hear their experience. And maybe I will change my mind. And that's how you learn and grow. Um, and if you want to be smart like me, kids, uh, then listen to other people. <laughs> That's like the only thing that. Okay. Ac ac academic empathy or intellectual empathy is a really interesting approach. I love looking at it like that. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, something that Hillary, I, I said this in the preamble, but I really love, and we've talked about this off stream before, I respect and love the way you approach your academic work in a sort of public scholarship way because this is not uncommon but not everyone does it in academia and academia is notoriously kind of opaque uses language that is not accessible it, it's not a space where like people can actually uh get like get what's going on um so i was part of the panel last week uh, at concordia university that um their communications department uh, uh, put on, hosted by Fenwick McKelvey. So we had this guy from The Walrus, the editor-at-large, Carmine Starnino. We had Sophia Barsowski from CUTV in Montreal, uh, my colleague, and she's coming on the stream later. Fanny Tan from Pivot and myself. And we were talking about like connecting independent media and public scholarship. You actually gave a talk for CUTV uh, the week before last. Mm -hmm. What were you talking about in that workshop? And um, maybe connect that workshop and the work that you do with public scholarship with, um, with the work you do academically. Yeah, so that workshop that I gave, which I think should be posted online at some point and I can mm -hmm. share it. Um, well, it's like, yeah, like a, a talk interview thing with CUTV and Concordia. Um, it was it was specifically about drug, like moral panics and misinformation in the media, which is rampant. And I think it's actually, it's obviously connects with 
what we're doing today, which is like fundraising for independent media, uh, because we know, and like those of us who pay attention to this stuff realize that, oh, capitalism poisons everything. And um, we can't have uh, media that actually like report and analyze um, from perspectives that, uh, you know, resonate with us uh, as the, the, the working class and anti-capitalist, um, unless the media that we're, we're supporting and paying attention to is independent. So, um, uh, yeah, I, um, I- Independent media is so important. Yes, it's, it's so important. So drug panics and moral, moral scares and misinformation, everybody's heard of like, uh, that, there's actually one right now happening with like rainbow fentanyl for Halloween. Like, oh, like the cartels are giving out rainbow fentanyl for your, to your kids and mm -hmm. whatever. And it's all bullshit. And um, I think that it's a good uh, point of uh, an analysis to look at this kind of uh, moral panics and drug scares, you know, the um, crack babies and, and, you know, all, there's all been all sorts of drug scares in the media. Um, and to look at like why those happen, which is uh, because it generates revenue um, on in the short term for for profit media, because uh, fear based media is drives clicks and views and all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And um, so once again, capitalism poisons everything, but also in a more insidious and sort of like larger structural uh, way, it drives the sort of like conservative machine of people who are more afraid, oh no, they're getting fentanyl to my children and their Halloween candy, which is just patently ridiculous because like drugs are expensive. Like people aren't just giving those away to children. And what are you, what are you doing? Like, there's like, like your kids are just gonna go up to the door and somebody's gonna throw like a handful of pills in their bag. And then the, 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 what is this dealer expecting to get out of this? You're gonna like, the the kid is gonna get addicted to it and then somehow go find the random door that they got this from. It's just it's so stupid. Anyways, mm. but the reason that they do this is because when they're um they're seeding fear into people, it helps this entire machine. So it helps uh drive the prison industrial complex. It helps drive cop funding, which is the big thing because um the the publications that are spreading this stuff are often getting their lies and misinformation directly from the police, directly from the DEA um directly from the R RCMP and they literally just lie they make stuff up and it's spread through the media and and uh a lot of journalists and journalistic outlets take whatever the police say as given truth mm -hmm. which is an insane thing to do and you wouldn't do that as a journalist as far as I know with any other organization but for mm -hmm. some reason the police are just inherently trusted mm -hmm. and like there's lots of reasons why that's not good and so, um, yeah, and it also helps conservative politicians to um, to have a fear-driven populace because when people are living in fear, they tend to be more concerned about themselves and their family and like, you know, me and mine, especially white people. Um, and so it drives them to support uh, conservative candidates. So it's just a nice mm -hmm. little ecosystem that they have set up. And well, then that reminds me just to tie it in to the work that Harbinger does, the work mm. that you do with your popular education on TikTok and in Twitter, which is that having these sort of alternative voices uh, is really important since we have a, a pretty disastrous media system. Um, it's not great. So I wanted to just uh, flag your TikTok for a second. People can follow you uh, at Hillary Agro on TikTok. And 
it's so wonderful because you basically are mainlining socialism on this extremely popular medium and getting a lot of really excellent reception. And so, you know, thousands or even some of people really uh, land with your audience. And um, and why why use TikTok? Why did that end up becoming a medium that you decided to really lean into? What, what do you think? Um, TikTok, I'm being asked a question about why I use TikTok. Um, so honestly, it started, this is how it started. And this is why I think this is important to talk about because I strongly, strongly encourage other leftists and I'm not talking about just if you think, oh, like I'm I'm good at speaking, I can do this. Specifically, if you think that you're bad at speaking about political issues, do this. Start a TikTok account and use it for practice. Hmm. I the reason I started my TikTok account was not to like educate the public. Um, it was to practice public speaking and to practice my educational work because you don't get better at doing this kind of work. Um, it doesn't come naturally. It gets better with practice. And so I was like, you know what, low stakes. I'm just going to make some videos and I'll just like, just see how it goes. And like, just, just, you know, practice video editing and, 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 and con condensing my, my thoughts and my voice, because the hardest thing as an academic who is used to giving like 90 minute lectures to students who have to sit there and listen to me and writing like long papers. It's really hard. And most academics don't practice this um, to just condense, you know, things into little bite-sized tidbits. However, uh, the other motivation that I have to do my ed public education work in bite-sized tidbits is I have ADHD and I don't like reading books. <laughs> um, I, I like watching videos. I like listening to podcasts. I like engaging with like easier, more digestible forms of media. And a lot of people do that. And if all we're doing is writing books, then we're missing a huge audience of people who are really interested in leftist thought um, who are not being reached. And so I just was like, I was, why, don't, why don't I practice this stuff? And obviously there's demand for it because I gained like 50,000 followers in the first five months. Like it yeah. was like bananas. Um, so I really strongly encourage, um, and especially because one of the things that I've been trying to do with my platforms more recently and in general is um, not only educate, but empower. Like, I think that um, I have some videos coming out uh, soon about uh, learned helplessness and um, what was the other one? Yeah, I don't know, but it, just about the way that we are so um, used to just like letting like leaders and, and people with like more power who seem smarter than us who seem like they have they, like more they're more trustworthy than us we just put our faith in them and we're like yay I support you I hope you I hope you fix things uh and obviously that's not working because like everyone in charge of our society is is a garbage person so um mm -hmm. I want to empower people to use their own voice and use their own power because the more that we're collectively doing this stuff the more that we'll get done which is why Andre um, I really admire you, um, and I'm going to say this because you're going to spend all day today, um, like, supporting other people, and I want everyone to know how hard Andre works and how supportive he is of all of us who are on the Harbinger Network, and, like, he works so hard, and he does this, like, because he genuinely believes in, in you know, leftist projects as a whole, and so um, I want more people 
to um to be like Andrea be like what can I do what what kind of what skills can I use to to help organize because organizing isn't just like union organizing or mutual aid it's doing things like putting people together like uplifting other people and talking to people supporting them and um I want people to realize that 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 they can do that that you can do that that anybody just with a little bit of practice and and effort um, you can build your skills and and build your ability to to reach people in whatever way um, you can because we're we're on our own out here, folks. Like there are no there's no Bernie Sanders coming to save us all. Like there's it's just well, but but we're all we have. But importantly, building community and and working with people who you share values with is so important. And thank you for that. And I it's really rewarding. appreciate you saying that, Hillary. Talk um, about mental health. Like it makes well, exactly. feel better. Yeah, exactly. It's like so rewarding. It feels so nice. Um, but just like as well with the work you do, I want to flag that like looking at your last like month or so of videos, um, it's really punchy, uh, sort of easy to access ideas as simple uh, as concepts as like finding joy is revolutionary. Uh, you deserve a living wage. Um, yeah anti-capitalist mindfulness i mean this is like good things because tiktok is such a punchy fast medium that people are really just like absorbing on the fly so having these like bite-sized ideas i think is a really good way of taking the sort of scholarly work and then making it like like you were saying really shrinking it down and having it be extremely punchy so yeah i think it's awesome um and are you just going to continue with it this is something that you just now see being part of your the way that you share your work well um i may be doing a little show i'm going to continue TikTok. um not because it's necessarily the most well thought out strategy for my career but because i'm compulsive about it and i like it and it's fun um <laughs> little reveal here i am in talks with a book publisher mm. right now and i'm thinking about um shifting some of my attention to writing a book but that's specifically shifting it away from twitter mm -hmm. uh because twitter is a trash fire and has been before elon musk got involved and honestly like it just it feels bad being on twitter i did with my therapist i did this thing where i like tracked all of my activities every day for a week and put a little like smiley face brownie face or neutral face or beside each activity to be like, how did I feel while I was doing this? Highly recommended activity. I strongly suggest if you don't have access to therapy, um, there are little tidbits that you can pick up and do this activity, track everything that you do and write down how you feel about it. And you might be surprised. Every time I went on Twitter, I felt like shit. And this isn't surprising. <laughs> Everybody knows this, but I was really had to reflect on it and be like, then why am I spending time there? Like self-care is a revolutionary act. I can't help other people if I am doing badly myself. Mm -hmm. So where can I best put my efforts that I will feel like I'm doing something and, and engaging with people, but also not like destroying my mental health in the process. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of writing a book instead of going on Twitter, but um, I, I think yeah. that's, a, I think that's a really good idea. I think I Hopefully would love that. Idea. I, I hope that happens. Okay. So all of that's really interesting. I feel like we were able to cover like your sort of scholarly work a little bit, your public facing uh, pop accessible work a little bit. And, and I love that. Um, so let's touch really quickly just on some Halloween fun stuff with our last seven minutes. 
Mm -hmm. um, Hillary, uh, Halloween, is it popular in, in uh, so-called Canada? What do you think? Is, is, <clears throat> is Halloween popular in Canada? Yeah, I, I would say so, but would, would you? I mean, yeah, it's, it's so funny. Last night when I was at this party, Mm -hmm. I mean, Halloween's for kids. It's for adults. Um, everybody loves it. I heard some weird critiques, probably from Twitter, the garbage fire of a website mm -hmm. that's like, oh, like Halloween used to be about like tradition and like scaring away the bad spirits and it should be like dark and scary. And now everyone just dresses as Iron Man and like whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but like human culture changes, man. And like <laughs> traditions are what they are. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we should be aware of when things are being monetized and capitalized mm -hmm. on. Um, I think we should see less like people buying one-off costumes at Spirit Halloween and a little more like thrifting. Like I made this outfit by um, paying attention at thrift stores and just having like, you know, when you're a little kid and you, you're looking for a certain Lego piece and you can just shut off every part of your brain that sees everything but the color red, if you need that piece, pick some patterns and be like, I'm gonna look for only the zebra things in this store and um and you can put it together and it's and it's great so i, I okay. would like to see people sort of like divesting a little bit from like the the vampire like the actual vampire capitalists that are trying to right. like you know convince us that you need a new costume every year that it needs mm -hmm. to be this that and just like buying those like one-off whatever but I, um, I i i can't believe you made that from thrifting that's amazing but also i'm sorry i i kind of uh the question was too open because obviously halloween is popular um, but specifically what this polling found really surprised me. Are you ready for this? Oh, it's another poll. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so trick or treating, I just assumed everyone trick or treats, right? Nope. Not the case. Nationally, only 28% of parents will let their kids trick or treat this year. 28%. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Hang yeah. on. Hang on. Yeah. Is this, how do you know it means like let their kid, like is the other percentage explicitly saying I don't let my kids trick or treat? Or is it like we both work nights and can't bring the kid out or like we live in an the apartment building and- Well, exactly, exactly. The question, was, the question was, will your children be trick or treating this Halloween? And 72% okay. of people said no. Reason oh. being 29% said the reason is uh, entry controlled building. 20% said not enough kids in the area. Um, oh, it's for handing out candy. area. That's well, the whole point. It's like a tiny little opportunity to redistribute wealth. Bring your kids to a rich area. I know. I know. I, like totally, totally shocking, right? But what I think is the reason is that. Although, I mean, to be fair, I know that this won't work for everybody, especially if you're not white. I know that you might mm -hmm. not feel super welcome doing that. Well, but it's also a regional issue. Because in fact, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, only 8% of parents are going to take their kids trick-or-treating. It's the same statistic in Quebec, where the tradition is not as ingrained as it is in, I think, I, th I thought it had something to do with like Irish immigration 100 years ago and how that influenced spaces. But however, in Ontario, half of parents will take their kids trick-or-treating. So that's the one place in the country where it's like super, super, super popular, or at least like half of the people are still doing it. So I don't know, that really surprised me. This is why me. we need to pay attention mm -hmm. to child child liberation and child uh, like rights activists, because mm -hmm. if kids knew that they had organizing power and they knew that their 
other comrades around the country were trick-or-treating and they can't go trick-or-treating they would organize and they would strike and they would demand that their parents let them get candy mm -hmm. that's very true that's very true i as, as someone who's a teacher i would actually hate to see kids organize um because i have to teach classrooms full of children often I'm often happy that they don't have that capacity. It would make it impossible to actually like do classroom management, but I get the- Yeah, not that I need my four-year-old to have more sugar. <laughs> she would probably be leading the organizational charge because of that <laughs> into it, but yeah. I, in principle, I love it. In practice, uh, wow, I guess I'm outing myself as a fascist because I have <laughs> teacher teacher inclinations, but in fact- Exposed. Um, in I'm fact, gonna clip this and 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 like <laughs> out of contact and like destroy you on social media. But in fact, with my nieces, I of course want them to eat lots of candy and have lots of fun. So Hillary, before we wrap this up, what uh what are you, what's your family, what do your kids do for Halloween? Because they're so tiny. Um, like do they get to celebrate stuff? Yeah, yeah. We're going trick-or-treating with some friends. Like we um we live in one of those like large apartment buildings that like I'm not going to trick-or-treat with our neighbors so um it's uh we're, we're gonna go um to to a friend's house and have that as our home base and and just trick-or-treat with our friends who also have like one and a half year olds and a couple there'll be a couple four-year-olds um yeah we're just gonna dress them up in cute costumes and like go walk around and like it's cute little kids in costumes are adorable it's gonna be fun I love I love Halloween it's my favorite, sounds... my favorite holiday actually so yeah yeah, me too. That sounds amazing. And uh, that sounds wonderful. I'm going to be, uh, yeah, with my nieces for trick-or-treating tomorrow, which will be really fun. So Hillary, this has been really cool. I really appreciate you helping to kick this off. It's an ambitious yeah. day uh, with a ton, an absolute ton of like really exciting names. Um, I, I want to flag that people should just, you know, go go to Twitter, go to at uh, Harbinger Tweets to check the schedule. Um, so you can stay up to date. The next block is happening beginning at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be Press Progress, whose new podcast, podcast Press Progress Sources, joined Harbinger a couple of weeks ago. So we're going to have Luke LeBron, Emily Leadham, Stephen Maguziak, Mitchell Thompson, and Rumnik Johal in five different cities across the country. Uh, I'm pretty stoked. It's going to be awesome. People can follow Hillary on Twitter, on TikTok. Uh, Hillary, any last words before we wrap this? Fuck capitalism. Happy, yeah. happy Halloween. Love it. Love it. Okay, Hillary. I thank hope everyone's you. doing well. Thank you for thank you for doing this, Andre, and thank you for everything Absolutely. that you do. And uh, yeah, support Harbinger. I know Absolutely. that everyone is is spread thin right now but if you if you can support harbinger um it's it's one of the best things that you can do with your money is like help to support media that's not ruining everyone's brains hey hey everyone happy halloween i'm stephen maguziak and i'm a reporter for press progress mostly working on the alberta beat two things i woke up with a slight bit of a cold i've been testing and i don't think it's covid i hope it's not so far negative, but just a little congested. Um, I also want to disclose that this pumpkin doesn't belong to me. Uh, I want to do something festive to kind of honor the season, but I couldn't find a pumpkin. I went to like three different places and they were all sold out. So I actually, I stole it. I, I stole it from my neighbor's porch. I'm kind of friends with them, I think. So I don't think I'm going to be getting in trouble for it it's just going to be sitting there perched up on top of this cat tower watching me judging me uh but i want to thank harbinger and 
Andre for inviting us on. Andre and Marino are doing, I understand, 12-hour shifts to pull this together. So they are the troops. I love Harbinger, and I'm on it all the time to hear the latest Canadian politics analysis from sources that don't make me want to rip my hair out. So thank you to their supporters, and thank you to them for the work that they do. A bit about press progress. Um, We are an independent new media organization. We do original investigative reporting and analysis covering Canadian politics in BC, Alberta, the Prairies, and Ontario. Uh, Press Progress is on Twitter and Instagram, just at Press Progress, and you can find us at pressprogress.ca. We break news, and I like to think that we tell a different kind of story that you'll not so much see in legacy media. But more on that later, uh, let's talk about Harbinger, and the work Harbinger does is incredibly important. Uh, Actually, sorry, I want to talk about the Harbinger Media Network, but first, let's introduce the team. So in BC, we have Ramnik Johal. Uh, Ramnik, how's it going over there in Vancouver? You're in Vancouver, right? It's pouring rain today, so that's great. I walked my dog in the pouring rain. My socks were wet, my clothes were wet. My dog was loving it. Um, But other than the the torrential downpour, it's, it's going pretty good. How's your Halloween weekend? Do anything? I had some friends over on Friday night, and then I spent yesterday just rotting because... I'm incapable of functioning after having any more than three alcoholic beverages. So yeah, I just, I spent the day doing nothing yesterday. So you're wet and tired. Good to no know. plans today either. I think I need like three <laughs> days to recover at this point in my life. Um, I don't have anything festive. I should have stolen a pumpkin from my neighbor's porch. Uh, next time I will absolutely try to do that as well. I'm going to return it like right after this broadcast. I just wanted something Halloween-y in the background. I don't think they'll be too pissed, hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, covering Ontario, we have Mitchell Thompson. How's your Halloween weekend going, Mitchell? Uh, going very well, Stephen. Yeah, uh, was at a party yesterday. I'm not going to say my face looked a little bit like your jack-o'-lantern, but it has been known to go that way. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty great. Uh, well, it was quite nice here, though, if we're doing the weather report. Um, it's uh, nine degrees Celsius, which is pretty Let's warm. Let's see weather reports. I want to hear how the yeah. weather is everywhere. Nine degrees. That's good. Yeah, things are seasonable. Autumn here. Um, and yeah, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, we have Emily Leadham. Emily, how's the weather and how is your Halloween weekend? The weather is pretty good. It's a nice, balmy, like around 10 degrees. So you just need like a light jacket. So it's nice. a great time um pretty uneventful halloween weekend kind of just uh chilling relaxing um yeah i caught up on the last few episodes of atlanta which is one of the most amazing shows ever so if anyone hasn't watched it atlanta is like super good and the last episode was just like completely unreal so yeah just been chilling watching tv do anything festive Got anything festive planned? Not really. <laughs> we are, we just moved in September. So we're still in the process of like setting up our place. So I think we're going to do a bit more of that today. Just like cleaning, tidying, boring, stuff like that. Let's talk a little bit about Harbinger. So three years ago, it began as a small collective of left-wing podcasts. Since then, it's grown. And now it's like this coast-to-coast collective of over 60 journalists, activists, academics in Canada, 
it's kind of become this hub and I hate the word community, but it really truly has become a community for left of center news and analysis. And it's this place to go for a huge variety of shows that offer a progressive look at Canadian politics and culture outside of mainstream media. And it's a small team that works tirelessly to keep it running. And it's, it's worth supporting. Viewers can donate directly on the stream or go to the website to become a monthly donor. You'll get access to perks like merch mailouts, $5 a month, and a free book from Between the Lines at $10 a month. And there's six different support tiers. So check it out, harbingermedianetwork.com slash join. And thanks to all the supporters of Harbinger Media. It's an exciting project that platforms a lot of very fearless shows with funny and sharp analysis on Canadian politics and culture. I'm also happy to announce that we're joining the Harbinger Media Network. We uh, have launched a show. Uh, first episode of Sources by Press Progress is available on Harbinger Media and other podcast networks and where, well, wherever podcasts are, Apple, whatnot. Sources is a newsy interview show where we talk to newsmakers and subject matter experts to go more in depth on the stories we cover. So in our first episode, which is now out, you can hear my talk with investigative journalist Jeff Dimbicki, author of a very spooky book called The Petroleum Papers. Jeff is a climate journalist with bylines and vice in the TIE, and in his new book, he reveals a decades-long conspiracy to suppress climate science and spread denialism by the major North American oil companies. Speaking with Jeff, I was struck by just how much the client climate denialist echo chamber was fueled specifically by the Alberta oil sands. In particular, these foreign stakeholders, ExxonMobil, which was operating as Imperial Oil and does, and Coke Industries. And it reveals that these companies had actually suppressed their own research that was showing that they were cooking the planet. And then um, instead of spreading the news, obviously, they went and built these right-wing echo chambers across North America via think tanks like the Fraser Institute and the Cato Institute. His work drew from a lot of confidential oil industry documents and emails and reports that show the industry just knew what it was up to. A lot of these interestingly came up onto the public record in the U.S. courts because what seems to be happening is that the oil industry is going through a moment kind of similar to what big tobacco was going through in the 90s, where cities and jurisdictions are suing them at the state and municipal level, causing a lot of these emails to come out. And it's revealing a really horrific story. Uh, it was put up by Fern Fernwood Publishing. I would absolutely recommend checking it out. Uh, another thing that had kind of, I thought was revelatory in my discussion with them Becky is just the extent to which North American oil companies and oil industry insiders in Alberta were instrumental in stopping climate action not just in Canada but also in the United States by setting up these grassroots movements at the state level and just creating havoc in that sense and let's talk to the rest of the team so I'm also, I want to introduce our new BC reporter Ramnik Johal the newest edition of Press Progress Ramnik, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am born and raised in Surrey, BC, uh, and I've lived in BC my whole life. Um, I previously have worked at Daily Hive, CBC. Um, I was editor-in-chief of a South Asian magazine called Vibe Express. Um, and now I'm here at Press Progress covering things like systemic inequality, workers, uh, the far right, um, and just really keeping my ear on the ground in some of the wild stuff that's happening here in BC, and there is definitely no shortage of it. So, 
No, absolutely not. You, um, speaking of the alt-right, what can you tell us a little bit about that story uh, you put out about Chip Wilson and the connection to the alt-right there? Yeah, so I did, during the Vancouver elections, I did a story about, uh, I was just following in general and something very bizarre happened. Uh, the Vancouver Police Union broke from tradition and endorsed a candidate for mayor, Ken Sim, who eventually uh, was elected. But prior to that, there was this event that was held in downtown Vancouver at SFU's Vancouver campus. And the only reason I saw this was because I followed this um, city council candidate on Twitter and he actually crashed the event and was live streaming from the event. The documentary was called Vancouver is Dying and it was created by Aaron Gunn, uh, who is the BC former BC Proud spokesperson. And he was he ran for BC Liberal leadership and was uh, kicked out of the party and disavowed by the party for his comments on reconciliation and acceptance and just some questionable things <laughs> Mr. Gunn was doing. Um, and so at the event, um, Sean Orr, who tweeted about it, uh, noticed a poster and a banner um, from the Pacific Prosperity Network, uh, which is an organization that kind of popped up during the election. And the story that I wrote kind of took a look at all of the bizarre links between these different parties. So Chip Wilson, who funds the Pacific Prosperity Network, which was sponsoring this event, which was uh, the Vancouver Police Union president was also present and was in the documentary. And not only did the, the union endorse Ken Sim, the president himself also donated to Sim's campaign. Um, Chip Wilson also had donated to Ken Sim in years prior, uh, people with um, the same names as Chip Wilson's uh, children and wife also donated to Ken Sim's campaign. Um, somebody with the same name as Chip Wilson's son was also executive producer of the documentary. Um, the panel was moderated by Angelo Isidoru, who is another far-right activist. Um, and so it was just a bizarre mishmash of all of these people and just trying to point out the links between all of them left me really dizzy because there's way too many layers to all of the weird connections between these people. So tell us a bit about what is Vancouver is dying? What a provocative name. Yeah. What's their was, MO? Yeah, it was this documentary that really had these very negative, like kind of negative portrayals of the homeless and uh, in Vancouver and people who use drugs. And it was really vilifying uh, safe supply and vilifying folks who are, um, you know, homeless in Vancouver, specifically on the downtown east side. And it was really trying to paint this, this narrative that this kind of, all of the language they use, this lawlessness that, you know, as they called it, was a result of the previous um, mayor, uh, Kennedy Stewart, and just uh, really advocating for um, different solutions. So, so they, they called it as opposed to, to safe supply. And so really um, voyeuristic, you know, images of, of people uh, on the downtown east side. And then they also interviewed, yeah, the Vancouver Police Union president and some other folks as well who were kind of coming up with solutions as they called it, um, but at the same time really kind of shaming uh, homeless people for being homeless and unhoused. So the Vancouver election kind of came down to the right winning based on a sort of fear mongering of crime. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, definitely. And so one of the pillars of um, CanSIM's campaign was hiring 100 new Vancouver police officers as well, 100 new nurses. And so that even we we say that out loud in the fact that the Vancouver police unit endorsed him and it's it's kind of like they're also he's linked to this documentary and triples and it also becomes a little bit um more interesting because they were very much fear-mongering to kind of get that vote um but what's interesting is Ken Sim previously ran with a different party the NPA which is a little bit more um far right and they've had a couple of scandals um and so the ABC was kind of trying to run as more of a centrist party but all of the people around, you know, clearly are, are um, advocating for more of these kind of far right kind of ideologies. So it, it was really fascinating the way that he kind of won overwhelmingly and got a lot of overwhelming support on the illusion of being a centrist leader. Yeah, it's really interesting there. I'm like, trying to wrap my head around the idea of uh, parties and municipal elections. It's not a thing we have here, though our new premier, Daniel Smith, is planning to introduce them. It's good to not have them, but... Yeah, we I have. Suppose... I think we just had way too many in our election, and I think that's why, because the NPA more publicly had scandals um, with, you know, Angela Isidore, who was on their board and was also present at this event. He was um, at a pro-Trump rally and was flashing um, a sign associated with um, hate groups and white supremacy. Uh, so he obviously was kicked off the board. And so that kind of their public image was a bit more extreme. And so because there was just so many parties, Ken Sims party, and also the overwhelming financial support that he had from people like Chip Wilson um, really kind of uh, helped him uh, come to victory. The way people are talking about it, they make it sound like the police union uh, intervening at the last minute was actually instrumental in the outcome. Is that true? Or can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, it's it's just never happened before. The Vancouver Police Union publicly kind of endorsing a candidate like that. And then especially so close to the election and hosting an event, you know, pledging their support. And I think because there is that, you know, fear of the fear mongering of, of crime and um, you know, unhoused folks and, and drug addiction on the downtown east side, they really use that rhetoric to help them themselves. And, and Ken Sin was really able to capitalize on that with uh, the, the police union support as well. Um, <clears throat> press progress is, I also want to mention now on TikTok, uh, how can people find us on TikTok and how's that going? Yes, our TikTok handle is at press progress CA. Follow us. We're always talking about, you know, these some of these stories that are trending and happening right now. And I think it's a really cool place to keep the conversation going. We've had the comments are overwhelming sometimes, but it's also cool to see uh, the conversations that are happening, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but that just comes with the territory. Um, and it's just cool to see the conversations that we're having continue elsewhere. So follow us on TikTok and feel free to share our videos because they are being shared widely, which is great because that means that people are interested in the things that we're covering. Um, and yeah. Thank you for uh, doing that as their resident TikTok understander. My elder millennial ass does not go near that platform except to watch funny videos once in a while. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, I, yeah, it's like a self-hatred thing maybe of like, okay, TikTok is either going to be really good or really terrible. And I'm like, I'm just going to roll the dice here and just go for it at this point. And what is the importance of independent left media to you? I think, well, even in this in this story, like if I wasn't 
checking, you know, people on Twitter who are sharing their, their personal experiences or drawing these connections. Like I said, a, a council candidate had randomly crashed this event and it wasn't covered by any other mainstream media. So this connection between the Pacific Prosperity Network sponsoring this event and all these other intricacies. So I think just having the ability and the resources to, to have your ears and eyes on the ground, so to speak, and to cover things that maybe won't be covered by other outlets or might be overlooked by other outlets is not significant. Um, I think that really shows the importance of independent media uh, because otherwise, you know, these stories wouldn't, wouldn't get told. So I think it's just um, important for, for people to support uh, Harbinger and Press Progress by reading our stories, sharing our stories, donating, uh, because really our work wouldn't be possible with, without it. Yeah, and I also want to thank Harbinger for creating a space to support independent left media. I, once again, viewers can donate directly on the stream or go to the website to become a monthly donor. You'll get access to perks like merch mailouts for $5 a month, free book between the lines at the $10 a month level. There are six support tiers, uh, harbingermedianetwork.com slash join. Thank you to all the supporters. I urge everyone to check that out. And Mitchell, I understand you've done a lot of work on the convoy donors. What can you tell us about? Actually, first, Mitchell, tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Mitch Thompson. I am uh, Ontario reporter for Press Progress, covering uh, education, healthcare, labor, and uh, it's on the, the far right, um, provincially and, and uh, federally, I suppose, um, uh, and yeah, across Canada. Um, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, in, in earlier this year, um, we were looking at the uh, the conservative support for what turned out to be a series of far right demonstrations. And one thing that was remarkable was that early on, uh, the GoFundMe link had a complete list of donors. So over the course of a few days, uh, including uh, my birthday. Uh, I spent the day calling up the people who gave thousands of dollars to uh, far-right dem anti-vaccine demonstrations. And they were pretty remarkable uh, conversants. Um, they had a lot of ideas. Um, yeah, and, and what was remarkable is none denied giving the money. And, and they covered quite a wide range of sectors. I mean, I, I assumed they would be uh, truck owners um, or logistics companies, and we got a few of those, but actually covered Canada and the United States. They included portfolio managers, uh, one at National Bank, um, one real estate investment, uh, real estate investor in New York, who's also a self-help guru, uh, has written a number of self-help books and uh, a big believer that he's in touch with aliens um, through uh, the lights in his apartment. Um, he uh, started a like anti-cancel culture online platform that includes a bunch of uh, David Icke's videos. I don't know if people are familiar with him. He's um, the yeah, no, I want to talk about the alien guy and David Icke, but I think we might need to back up and talk about because the fact that this all got disclosed is fascinating. Basically, yeah. the convoy donors got doxxed. Is that accurate? No, they put themselves on a GoFundMe link. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of the Give, Send, Go donors, because yeah. that actually, those, they got full on, like everybody who had donated to the convoy via this Christian crowdfunding alternative to GoFundMe, Give, Send, Go, 
yeah that came out later yeah released later but uh yeah the story we were working on they were all quite proud to have donated to the convoy at the time so who's david ike tell us about david ike david ike is uh i believe he's us i think he might be australian he's somewhere in oceania he's British, um, i think bbc uh, guy and yeah he is uh he is a holocaust denier for one um he is also uh i don't know if you might call him an amateur herpetologist but he uh really is into his theory that uh, the world is governed by a, a kind of cabal of interdimensional reptiles lizard um, people he he's like the lizard people guy he's a lizard person one of the most fascinating things about David Icke to me is that he was one of the early Alex Jones allies before anyone had heard of Alex Jones. I remember yeah, David well, Icke would go on Coast to Coast AM and just, um, yeah, just talk to it. Like he went on Alex Jones's show in like the early 2000s. Talking about these actually, wild theories about, yeah, we're governed by lizards. It's remarkable because eventually Alex Jones, I think, broke with David Icke's and there's a point that everyone. I do not think he has enough evidence to support his claims, which yeah. is, uh, you know, the bar for convincing Alex Jones of anything has to be pretty low, but uh, David Ikes didn't manage to clear it. Anyway, so this one convoy owner uh, is uh, a big fan of David Ikes, and um, we couldn't get in touch with him, but he put him, he put a YouTube video out uh, announcing that he himself had given over $10,000 to the convoy and asking people to do likewise. Um, support what he described as both the biggest convoy ever which probably isn't true and uh the the most glorious uh freedom movement ever which is also not true <laughs> and uh for the record um yeah he was quite the character and um any others also, that stuck out yeah the other was a guy who owns a uh a logistics company and he told me that if uh, the convoy fails, he is prepared for civil war. And he said, I don't want a war. And uh, I told him, well, well, I don't want a war. And he said, well, freedom isn't free, my friend. But um, if he doesn't get civil war, he uh, told me he would support um, Pierre Polyev. Oh, so that's where he's at now. He, found, he, he gave himself an out then, it sounds like. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. He's now no longer obligated to do civil war. He can simply just support Polyev. Have you checked in on him? What's he up to uh, now? No. However, there was, yeah, I, I don't really need to talk to that guy again. But um, I remember after the article was published, he saw it. And I was kind of worried because I've had like far right deranged people send me threads after we published stuff about them. Right. But it turns out he actually quite liked the article and thought we captured his worldview well. Um, which was a strange day. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. Um, yeah, is he a subscriber to Press Progress now? Uh, I guess that's not important. That's Any not other donors that stick I have out? Have access to, but uh, <laughs> if you would like to donate, um, maybe we can put the link in the chat in case he happens to be in the audience. Uh, so what role does independent left media play to you? What's the importance of supporting organizations like Harbinger and Press Progress? Well, I, uh, I'm a self-interested party on this, but uh, I, I must say, uh, I, I think it's, it's so much of the media begins with the assumptions that although they're well-intended, they're primarily there to be stenographers. 
um, to record what's directly in front of them. And, you know, having independent media, we can come from the position that we report on things that aren't covered. Otherwise, uh, our priorities uh, are different from the priorities of journalists who are often quite close to people in power. And we have different, um, different prerogatives and, and, and different interests. And uh, we try to represent the, those who are left out of the mainstream media when we can. And I think uh, platforms like ours and, and the Harbinger media as a whole has provided a real space for, for those who are left out of, of the mainstream media and, and ideas that are left out of the mainstream media um, and uh, has been a really valuable resource to that end. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. Um, Emily, how's it going? Can you uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm the reporter for Manitoba and Saskatchewan, and I also am the editor of Shiftwork, Press Progress's weekly labor newsletter, which is a roundup of labor news across Canada. And it's the only place where you can find a comprehensive list of strikes and lockouts in the country. Um, so there's a whole section. We keep it updated every week um, and you can subscribe and it'll get into your inbox every week. So, yeah, that's a bit about myself. I've been covering the prairies for a while, a few years. Uh, I was working with rank and file. I had a podcast and I was covering labor issues. So that's kind of like my specialty there. But there's working on the prairies. There's so much overlap and um, with, you know, far right politics and, and right wing politicians. And so working with Press Progress has been really great because I've been able to, um, yeah, kind of like expand my I guess, uh, focus a little bit and yeah, really dig into some of these far right groups and their links to um, right wing politicians because on the prairies we're very dominated by conservatives at the moment. So yeah, that's a bit about me right now. What can you tell us about the latest goings on in Winnipeg? Well, we just had an election, a municipal election and uh, a Pentecostal pastor won. So that's where we're at. <laughs> um, How did that happen, though? Like, what's the backstory? Um, I mean, there's a number of different things, but we had uh, one guy, Glenn Murray, who was kind of seen as the front runner, and he was a mayor of Winnipeg previously. He was also a Ontario Liberal cabinet minister. So he came back and was like, I'm going to run for mayor again. Um, but a expose came out about him, about some pretty controversial uh, actions that he had done, or I shouldn't say controversial, but like allegations of abuse and sexual abuse and things like that. Um, so that a lot of people view as kind of like dampening his chances of winning, even though he stayed in the, in the race and maybe gave this guy, Scott Gillingham, the edge. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of people were a little, little surprised Surprised, maybe caught off guard um but also I think a lot of people we had record low turnout and I think a lot of people were just generally like uninspired because there just was not not really that great of options to begin with you know we had some really great counselors running some great school board trustees um but overall like pretty uninspiring so that's where we're at right now And tell us a little bit about Shift Work, the uh, weekly labor newsletter. 
Yeah, so I started it about a year ago. And I started it because there was, yeah, there was really no place that had a kind of overview of, you know, like labor news in Canada, like what's what's going on in all the different provinces and, and across Canada. Um, and I felt like I was really, like I wanted a resource for myself to stay on top of like what was happening because, you know, different um, uh, things that happen in different provinces will sort of like, you know, can influence conservative politicians in other provinces if they see something worked over here to kind of like crush or discipline labor. Maybe they'll try it in another uh, area. One example is like the emergencies, no, not the emergencies act, sorry, the um, critical infrastructure bills, which were meant to, which was introduced in Alberta to kind of um, prevent, you know, protests from blocking critical, quote, critical infrastructure. Um, right. We saw later the Manitoba PCs, you know, introduce something like that. And labor groups were concerned that this would impact, you know, their, their ability to like strike or right. have pick lines or anything like that. So anyways, I wanted this kind of resource for myself. So I kind of created it. <laughs> and a lot of other people had kind of reached out to me and were like, hey, like, I, I want to know what's going on. I want to know where the you know, all the strikes and, and lockouts are so I can support or I can know like which, you know, companies to like avoid if they're treating their workers poorly. So yeah, I created this newsletter. It goes out Saturday mornings right now. And it's been really great. The list has been growing quite a bit. We're like pushing to grow up more. And we really want to frame it as, you know, in every, in every mainstream newspaper you have a business section but you don't have a labor section a labor section that shows you like oh here's what's going on in this particular area so this is kind of filling a gap in uh mainstream coverage and it's a critical in gap in mainstream coverage, well. coverage labor is critically underreported at a time when labor is increasingly under attack across canada in alberta we have bill 32 that went through that basically designates even like people who work scaffolding for the oil sciences essential workers making strikes and lockouts pretty much impossible so you can check it out at pressprogress.ca slash shift work also you are featured in or you are going to be featured in a upcoming catalan show that i believe drops tomorrow called rat fucker what a provocative title what can you tell us about rat fucker what did you talk to catalan about yeah, so basically, um, I talked to Candleland about the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, which is a kind of controversial, controversial religious sect. Um, and they kind of, they say that they're not secretive, but they kind of, you know, run a pretty low profile. Um, but they've been sort of um, involved in a few things that have come to light recently because there's been some ex-members of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church that have started speaking out. Um, recently, they were focused, uh, featured in a documentary in City News earlier this year where ex-members talked about how the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church's doctrine of separation will cut off, you know, people who have displeased the leaders of the Plymouth Brethren Church, they'll be cut off from their, their their families, their friends, their communities, their workplaces, just completely um, like cut off from any sort of social networks that they have. And highlighting, you know, how problematic this is, but also highlighting some of the um, maybe problematic aspects 
of the church members' business dealings, um, which is really fascinating because the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church um, really has an extensive business network. A lot of the members will have small businesses. And I'll, I'll clarify as well, um, this is kind of like a sect that's around the world. They have about 50,000 members worldwide, and it's believed under in Canada, they have under, under 10,000 members. And so... I was going to um, say, how extensive is this network? Is it across the Commonwealth? Yeah, it's yeah, it's mainly in, you know, Australia, New Zealand, UK, um, there's a bit in Canada and a bit in the US. So they're not really big at all. They're quite small. But given their focus on um, building up small businesses, and they have businesses um, kind of all along different levels of the supply chain, they also have a group that helps them do uh, group buying called the Universal Business Team. So we'll kind of do like group buying and get like really great bulk, you know, pricing for all these different um, businesses that they have. So given they're so small, they have quite a bit of um, you know, business savvy and money, which is really interesting. And the ways that they use that money have not been really explored uh, quite a bit because it's they've, you know, they've kind of flown under the radar. But again, these ex-members kind of highlighting some of these. Um, yeah, actions that they've done. So one thing that I reported on working with um, some ex-members who were speaking out about this is there's this group called the Canada Growth Council and it was a third party advertiser in the 2019 election. And they ran um, billboards and you know media ads attacking the liberal candidates, Justin Trudeau and other, yeah, other liberal candidates there. And it was kind of promoting like, you know, Western values and the energy sector and, and things like that. And there were over a dozen members that we found that were connected to the Plymouth Brethren Church that donated um, nearly $40,000 all within the span of 48 hours to this Canada Growth Council group. And this was significant because the Canada Growth Council Oh, sorry, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, part of their policy or their, you know, uh, doctrine is that Plymouth Brethren members don't vote. So it's really interesting that here they are kind of funding this third party advertising group during the election when their own members can't vote. And of course, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, you know, we got statements from them saying that um individual members are still able to do political activities or of their own volition, kind of advocate for different things that they want to do. Um, they deny that there's any sort of central coordination at all. There's not like it's kind of hierarchy from top down. The leader of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church right now is in Australia. His name is um, Bruce Hales. And so they deny that, you know, like Bruce, Bruce Hales is kind of pulling the strings, um, right. but ex-members, kind of are like well yeah. ex-members are saying it, something else yeah there's they, they're saying that something else and they found it interesting that these donations happened within 48 hours even though these Plymouth Brethren members were located across the country like from BC to Alberta to Saskatchewan um Ontario but somehow all of their donations nearly forty thousand dollars worth of donations all happened within 48 hours and, and it's so a significant amount like, of like this is a significant amount of political capital going towards political causes coming from members of this 
church what does this church believe like what is their kind of worldview yeah it's outlined kind of all on their website but they have um a big focus is sort of on um they, they promoted the idea that you know of the rapture, the end times, things like that. Like that's been a significant part of their like theological history. Um, and so, yeah, and the kind of isolation from the world has been a main tenant of their beliefs as well. So they kind of keep to themselves. They want to, yeah, kind of like not associating with like secular non-believers, um, things like that. So um, that's generally the the gist. Right. And even though like, you know, $40,000, it's, 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 it's a, it's a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not like the biggest amount any conservative group has ever, you know, donated, but just the fact that they've have this business at, at work and they've been so far underreported um, and they have these big business communities, we found it just significant that we were able to like, just dig up this information that was previously like unknown and just gives you another glimpse into like a piece of the conservative movement. So there's been kind of some, since the story has kind of got bigger, um, there's been some people who have promoted the idea that there's like a conspiracy theory, like, oh, the Plymouth Brethren is like this big, you know, Christo-fascist organization that's like yeah. pulling the strings. That's not the case at all, but they're just like, one of many different conservative groups that are trying to you know gain influence yeah. within the conservative movement yeah it's true some people are talking about them like they are the christofascist deep state of sorts but it's a bit bigger than that that fair to say yeah it's it's um i think if you haven't if there's not a lot of information about something or, or a particular group it's easy to fill in a lot of those gaps with speculation or you know or things like that but what we really work to do is like verify all the information we verified it using public publicly available data so we checked it against like um public donor records and uh charity data um you know things are publicly available so that's one thing we really tried to do um and I'll highlight, we did some subsequent stories that focused on how these uh, Plymouth Brethren businesses were able to secure some uh, COVID-19 emergency contracts in Ontario and Manitoba for things like emergency masks and um, other, other materials like that. So yeah, it was just very interesting to note that they They've been yeah getting pretty big government contracts and this has been a big investigation in the uk as well i was gonna say so, uh in the uk the um there was a significant dollar figure associated with plymouth brethren connect businesses and ppe supplies can you talk a bit more about that yeah i believe it was over like two billion pounds like it was a lot right. and people in Australia and the UK are more familiar with the Plymouth Brethren because there's been more reporting on them there. So it's um, people, yeah, people are more familiar with with kind of who they are and what they what they're about. So we were just able to um, highlight more about what they were doing in Canada, which is similar, you know, kind of similar activities. Um, so yeah, 
all that's to say that is kind of mainly what I was talking about to Canaland on the upcoming series, which um, there, I believe there will be an episode that kind of like focuses on the Plymouth Brethren specifically. But yeah, the series is going to be very fascinating because there's a lot more like just weird stuff going on. So um, yeah, that was one of the more interesting stories that I was able to. I'm on. truly looking forward to this series because it involves a source I've spoken to for stories I've worked on as well. Um, the titular rat fucker. I believe that was out tomorrow. Anyways, Emily, uh, what is the role of independent left media in the larger Canadian media ecosystem, in your opinion? Yeah, I think um, building on what you know other people have said, I think it's really, I think it's really great that it not only promotes this kind of, you know, political analysis or particular, you know, focus of investigations, but um, I think it can also provide an entry point for people to discover and learn more about those kinds of um, those kinds of politics, and for young journalists as well to kind of be able to connect with, you know, find like a, a group of people that are like-minded and working towards similar uh, goals. Um, it it kind of makes it easier for the group for the. Um, yeah, for, for people who are interested in, in that kind of journalism to, to grow and to build their skills as well as we share like um, knowledge and resources and network and, and, and read each other's stories and read each other's reporting. Um, I think it's really great to be able to promote, you know, up and coming journalists uh, as well. And um, yeah, so, you know, if you want to like start a podcast and do something that other people haven't done or focus on something that um you think is is missing you can just do that and you can reach out to the harbinger network for support and we'll help you kind of you know grow your your podcast and and provide some tips and resources like it's just a really great um really great thing to have so it really is yeah let's talk a little bit more about harbinger because yeah it, like we were saying earlier like three years ago it was this small collective of kind of left-wing podcasts that's since grown into a much larger one it's now coast to coast and has over 60 journalists active like activists academics in Canada and it kind of provides like a one-stop shop like a place to go for all of these kind of uh, views on pop culture politics that just could not exist in the mainstream and it's a very small team that works to keep it running shout out to Andre Goulet uh, for kind of being the workhorse behind it and it's worth supporting Viewers can donate directly on the stream or they can go directly to the website to become a monthly donor where you'll get access to merch mail outs like $5 a month and a free book from between the lines at the $10 a month level. Check out the website for more information on the six tiers of support. Um, and thanks to all the supporters of Harbinger, it really is an exciting project. It platforms, like I said earlier, like absolutely fearless shows. It's sharp analysis. It's funny. And um, also check us out because we've joined it. I'm happy to announce that we've launched a show on Harbinger. Uh, Sources by Press Progress, which I talked about earlier on the show. And it's, it's also my understanding that there is another new addition to the show. Uh, the former Canada Land debate show, Oppo, I understand, is returning to the Harbinger Media Network. And it's going to feature Max Fawcett and Robin Urbach doing irreverent debate. Now, this is a surprising 
pivot in their careers and a slightly confusing one, but I hesitantly welcome our new compatriots at uh, Harbinger. And lastly, I want to get to our new member of the team, Romy Garrido. Romy, how's it going? Romy's internet has been just consistent. Oh, um, there we go. There you are. Hey, Romy. Yeah. How's it's it going? Absolute a, a dog's breakfast this morning. I'm so sorry, but good. How are you? Good. You're coming through okay. That's good. What were your Halloween plans? You didn't tell us. <laughs> this is terrible. Tell I have a terrible weekend. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. No, it's. Uh, I think the Zoom issues, the the Twitch issues, rather, have been emblematic of just a, a chaotic life over the last couple of weeks. I'm moving, Fair so. Enough you know, let's not focus too much on the non-fun that I've had. I've done nothing interesting. I, I forgot that it's Halloween, to be honest. Thanks to the Harbinger Media Network for reminding me because this telethon um, lets me know what date it is and what time of the year it is. So anyways, right. yeah, nothing. All good here. How are You're you? Moving. Are, you weekend? Are, you, are you staying in Calgary or where are you? Oh, <laughs> this is so important, but no it's all good yeah yeah we're we're alberta based now we're here so i'm here with you fighting the good fight um yeah tell us a bit about yourself um so i'm actually at press progress for uh the next few months uh it's a bit of a temporary piece just helping these folks out um you folks out rather to get the good stories that you put out to as large of an audience as possible so my title is audience engagement coordinator i'm not a journalist um but what i am doing and hopefully you've seen um, some of the contributions in the chat is just trying to connect with the hundreds of thousands of readers that we have a month because yes that is our audience but um, what we want to make sure is that folks are just really well engaged that they feel like they're part of the press progress community and they understand everything that it takes for you folks to be able to break the stories that you do so yeah that's it that's me in a nutshell fair enough and um as a supporter of independent canadian left media what does harbinger bring to the table to you oh man well you know what so i i've been thinking about this quite a bit the reason I'm here is because I, I believe in the work that Press Progress does, and I believe in the work that so many different outlets do um, that are, you know, joining this telethon today um, that are along the same lines, which is breaking stories, talking about issues in Canada that affect everyday people that corporate media just can't and won't do. So, yeah, um, I think the importance really is that we have the freedom to be able to critique those that are, you know, in the echelons of, of wealth and power, and uh, we're able to do it transparently, we're able to do it credibly. And so, yeah, I mean, that's really it, right, uh, to be able to, to push forward for a better society for all. I think we, we need to be able to talk about um, all the different things that are affecting our everyday lives, all the decisions that are being made um, in those places of power. And so that's what Harbinger Media does. That's what Press Progress does. And so that's why I'm here. Tell us a bit more about the subscriber program for Press Progress. So you may have heard Emily talking about shift work. There's been a, a really massive focus from Press Progress to be able to grow shift work, to make it the labor newsletter um, that's really doing very specific work. Like we said, the only one that keeps track of uh, strikes and lockouts. And so we're going to be expanding that focus into just a larger Press Progress membership program. And what that means is that 
all of the stories that you folks are breaking on a daily basis will still be accessible. They're still free. We're absolutely committed to that. Um, but, you know, it's no secret. It takes a lot of resources. It takes time and it takes money to be able to uh, dig that deeply. I mean, I've seen it myself, how um, to be able to access those really challenging documents that you know, are, are behind closed doors in, in the, the halls of power, it takes money and it takes time to do that sort of investigative journalism. So what we will be doing is inviting everybody to support us in a more meaningful and a closer way. Um, so you can join the Press Progress uh, subscriber newsletter for absolutely free. You'll still get uh, really relevant, timely, engaging, we won't spam you content right into your inbox. And it'll be all the news stories that we're breaking, like I said, on a daily basis. But at the same time, if you want to get a bit of a closer look, um, know what it takes, get to know these journalists, the ones that have been chatting about all the great work that they've been doing for the last hour, if you want to get to know them a little bit more, then you can join the subscriber program. For now, please Donate to Harbinger though. Today the focus is Harbinger Media. The links are in the chat. Um, but just follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, like we are on now. Um, and just keep an eye on when that launches and we hope for your support then. Yeah, you can find us at pressprogress.ca on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, sorry, um, Ramnik, what is our TikTok handle again? It's pressprogress.ca. CA, sorry, it's just at Press Progress on Twitter and Instagram, sorry, and Press Progress CA on TikTok and pressprogress.ca, of course, uh, to subscribe and see our work, as well as pressprogress.ca slash shift work. But yes, we are here to talk to the Harbinger Media Network. Um, I've Spe been. Uh, speaking of Harbinger Media Network, uh, this is your technical producer, Marino, chiming in. I believe we have a special guest joining us right now. Oh, yeah? Who do we got? Uh, no stranger. It's Andre Goulet. Andre, thanks for having us on. How you doing? Can you guys uh, hear me speaking to you? Hello. You're coming through great. Wonderful. Well, you guys, uh, that was really cool. Thank you so much for joining the stream. And uh, you had talked about, should we do something creepy, spooky, whatever? But in fact, like the content of the work that Press Progress produces is so scary that uh this was a little bit of a halloween treat as well um so yeah like i'm happy you didn't wear vampire cloaks or get weird um i got right pretty on. weird i stole a pumpkin man come on well, that's, no i saw this no that's cool um i was dissuaded from wearing the vampire cloak yeah <laughs> you're all thinking of dressing up as dracula and then we decided against it I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that that they waited they wait against that. But um, I wanted to flag before you guys wrap up in a couple minutes. Um, so Stephen spilled the beans. It's true. We have been negotiating behind the scenes to bring back one of Canada's favorite, uh, most precious podcasts. That's right, Oppo. Um, it's an unusual well, pivot, but I'm excited to formerly um, formerly hosted by Justin Ling and Jen Gershon. But we thought we could do better. Uh, that's right, we've been negotiating behind the scenes with Canada Land to purchase the rights to Oppo and relaunching it with the wonderful Max Fawcett and the fantastic Robin Urbank. Uh, it's not a done deal, mostly because financially 
we need to hit certain targets in order to make that happen. We are looking to bring on 50 new members on today's stream and a thousand bucks for individual donations. Uh, it's possible if we can hit those goals, we will be bringing back Oppo. Uh, I'm gonna have more updates on that as the stream goes on. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful show. Uh, we we want to bring it back. We're, we're hoping that can happen. So I urge viewers to go to harbingermedianetwork.com slash join and uh, check out our tiers uh, or just drop a toonie on, on, this, on this live stream right now by going to your bottom right corner and smashing the follow button. Um, press progress. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. This has been awesome. We need to give Marino a chance to do the... Uh, uh, transfer to the new the new panel but um this has been cool emily leadham joined us from winnipeg mitchell thompson's in toronto steven mcguziak is in calgary rumi johal is in vancouver and romi is in calgary as well uh you guys thank you so much for coming on i know what you did last telethon 